Welcome. You're listening to the Vital and Thriving Podcast for Congregations Building Beloved Community. I'm Scott Sherman. And I'm Claire Dietrich Rana. We're two freewheeling, fun-loving, kind of ridiculous Episcopal priests. Speak for yourself. Serving the people of God and God's church here in the Bay Area. While supporting each other and you in noticing and responding to the movements of the Spirit in this unique moment we find ourselves in. Welcome to the Vital and Thriving Podcast after a, a longer than expected summer break. Yeah, I think it was more like an ordinary time break. Oh, right, right, right. Ordinary time. Okay. Anyway, here we are just in time, speaking liturgically for a new liturgical year. And we're really glad to be here because this is a conversation we have been hoping for for a long time. Yeah, today we are thrilled to welcome to the show the Right Reverend Marianne Edgar Buddy, Ninth Bishop of the Diocese of Washington, which we should note for our mostly Californian audience refers to Washington, D.C., not Washington State, though I believe that also includes parts of Maryland because names are never straightforward in our church. (laughs) Elected in 2011, Bishop Marianne is the first woman to hold this position with oversight of 88 congregations and 10 schools, as well as the Washington National Cathedral. She's the author of three wonderful books, most recently the 2023 title, How We Learn to Be Brave, Decisive Moments in Life and Faith which we'll discuss in some depth today. Her other writings have been published in numerous books and journals. She's also a cyclist, a mom, and a, I quote, doting grandparent. Bishop Marianne, welcome to the Vital and Thriving podcast. We are so glad that you're here. Thank you. Thank you, Claire and Scott. It's um, it's really wonderful to be with you. So grateful for the invitation. Um, you know, it, it's just an honor to have you with us. Uh, I have admired your work for uh, from afar, um, and I should say, I have referred your a particular your book on the way of love to uh, more mm. than a handful of small groups. Uh, mm-hmm. So it's Thank just so and this latest book, um, it's just especially resonant, I think, with um, with the work that's happening in this diocese of California mm. and the congregations. Um, you, there's a wonderful chapter in this book where you you talk about. Uh, deciding to start, mm-hmm. uh, where you talk about the story of how you decided to move forward to become the Bishop of Washington. I wonder if you could just share a little of that with us. Uh, yeah, and as with um, most uh, significant journeys, when I started it, it in the beginning, I had no idea that it was the Diocese of Washington, nor did I have any sense um because none of us know for certain when we start something, what the outcome will be. But I had, um, I had an experience of uh, vocational disappointment in my ministry as a rector, um, senior pastor of the church in Minnesota, where I had been at that point for about 10 years. And I had my heart set in a way that I hadn't realized until I was not called, had my heart set in an enormous way on uh, the position of dean of our cathedral in Minneapolis. And that process was um, kind of a long and 
uh, confusing one. In the end, I was not chosen. And uh, during that time, I, I felt... I felt like the long-range vision of my life, my vocational life, went dark. Just went dark for mm-hmm. a long time, and I um, um, it took about a year. I had some interesting physical symptoms that went along with that, and um, in that time, I felt the spirit give me a vision to stay where I was at at St. John's, and for a specific amount of time that I needed to communicate if I was either going to, I either had to leave right away or I was going to, I needed to commit. So as I, as I was praying about it and talking about it with my family and key leaders, I made the commitment to stay for at least five more years so that we could just take off the table, any conversations about future call, we could focus on the ministry there. And I felt very much at peace at that. And then almost within within that same year, I had this other rising feeling that it was time to start something and to start on a journey of preparation and to equip myself for the potential of leadership with greater responsibility in the church. And it was very explicit. I mean, it wasn't some vague thing. And obviously I thought Bishop was the likely possibility of that, although I wasn't 100% sure. And I I didn't quite know how to begin, but I knew that I had to begin. And I started paying attention to doors that opened to me and to the people that came into my life. And so part of that journey included uh, starting a doctor of ministry program at Virginia Seminary. Part of it it included being part of a diocesan-wide soul-searching experience that brought me in touch with church innovations um, in a different configuration back in those years. And and when there was a crisis in our diocese of Minnesota, a, a leadership crisis, and our bishop announced his resignation, or his plan to retire. I um, I knew immediately that I would apply. And again, I um, it was a long journey. These processes are never short. And I poured my heart into that as well. And I, um, I love the people of Minnesota. I love the diocese. I had been there for a long time. And I I was given reason to believe that that would be the next faithful step, both for me and for them. And again, I was not called, um, which was a little, it's, you know, those of us who are in these searches, public searches, I don't know, Claire, if you've been in how many searches you've been a part of, you look considerably younger than I am, but um, <laughs> being, um, being in public searches, I mean, these were both my local, there's, there's a degree of humiliation that, you want, that I felt, not, just embarrassment, really, after the mm. bishop's election in Minnesota, um, not being chosen by my peers. And um, Bishop Marianne, it makes it reminds me of that. Uh, I remember John McCain after losing uh, yeah. his election talking about, you know, getting up and crying and then <laughs> having lunch and then crying. Right. Well, there was some <laughs> of that. I, I, there was some of that. Actually, the grief I felt the first time around with, at, at, with the cathedral was like that. I couldn't stop crying. It was really, really mm. intense. And um, it was a little different after um, after the Minnesota election. 
there I just felt, I felt numb. I felt absolutely mm-hmm. numb. And I didn't know what to do. The five years had passed. My, remember that vision I had given, I had set myself, mm-hmm. the five years had passed. So now I'd been at St. John's, Minneapolis for, it had now been like 16, 17 years because the whole bishop search took a while. And um, one thing I knew is that I didn't have another five years in me in this congregation. I just, I knew I didn't. And that, that made me um, feel like I, um, it made me feel like an inadequate leader for them because I didn't have vision. Right. And I feel like if mm-hmm. you're going to lead a community, you need to be able to see yourself in that place. And I, and I couldn't. Mm-hmm. And uh, the, the lay leaders at the time who I was very close with, they said, well, you know, do you have a year? Can you, can you see a year? And I said, mm-hmm. Yeah, you know, and honestly, I could. And I said, well, why don't we just take it a a year then, a year at a time? And I was very grateful for them because I felt like I just needed to, um, I don't know what, I just needed to to just be for a while. And um, the day that the bishop was officially consecrated in Minnesota, um, John Chain, my predecessor here in Washington, announced that he was retiring. And a friend of mine who had made the move from Minnesota to Virginia Seminary reached out to me and said, I think you should, I think you should look at this. And at the time, and I know I'm, I'm, forgive me if I'm going on too long, but this is, this, this, the thing about it, it was like, it's, it's like these, the, I was moving toward a goal um, and I was moving toward my sense of call, which was the spiritual transformation and the structural renewal of the Episcopal Church. I mean, that was my sense of call. And um, so when Washington came open, I didn't tell anybody because it felt like the longest of long shots. I, you know, St. John's Minneapolis and Washington National Cathedral could not be more different. Um, The Diocese of Minnesota, the Diocese of Washington. But be that as it may, I just started walking toward it, and I remember saying, "I just, I just want to get in one." Yeah, there was one reference you were talking about. T- you know, this that discernment to kind of just take this like next step, bite size yep. kind of. You had mm-hmm. a, you have a wonderful quote in the book from El Doctor. Yes, uh, yes. Where he says, "You know, you you can only see as far as your headlights." Right, but you can make the whole <laughs> ru- but but you can make the whole trip that way. And I felt like that. I feel like that mm-hmm. more more than I can say. But I really felt it then. And um, but long story short, when I started the process in Washington, what came back to me was a sense of palpable excitement. And I also knew because I've kn- I had known disappointment like two times in a really devastating way. I knew I could I knew I could live through disappointment again. My husband wasn't quite so sure because he was he had watched me and sort of picked me up from the puddle of it all both times. But he, and he said, you know, are you sure you, you know, you want to be hurt like that again? And I said, mm-hmm. I think it's, it's worth it. You know, this one's worth it. Um, and as you know, obviously I, I was elected, but it, um, the interesting thing was I knew that even if I wasn't elected, I was happy to step into that ring again. And I also knew that if I weren't called, I would be leaving what I was doing. So it's almost like jumping off a cliff. Like I was either doing this or something else. And looking back, it has this air of inevitability about it. But as you know, from your own lives and anything that you've done walking towards something like that, it was anything but certain going step by step by step. 
But I have, I just want to say one thing. I have spoken to women in particular about this because there are things that we can do in those seemingly fallow or inconclusive stretches of ministry that can prepare us for what may be coming next. But as we're preparing for them, we never know if the opportunity is going to come, right? I mean, we just never know. But if we don't prepare for them, um, if we don't make ourselves, put ourselves in position in the position of being a, a viable candidate, we will never know, right? And so, yeah. yeah. So that's that story. I just really want to Thank you both for what you just said and what you wrote and the honesty with which you tell that story. I mean, I think sometimes our stories fail to be as helpful as they might be to others because we feel like we have to clean them up or like hide the parts of it that were hard. And it just means so much when we tell the the honest truth. And sometimes there's good reasons for being vulnerable. But I think when we can be and we take that risk, it just changes everything. Claire reads, I think more than anybody I know. (laughs) And I can't imagine how many leadership books she's read. And, um, you know, Claire, how many leadership books do you know where where the leader writing is always the hero of the story, even in the setbacks? And this was so unusual. I thought, and wonderfully mm-hmm. refreshing in this book, is that you, you're you just transparent about mistakes mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. misfires and disappointments. Mm-hmm. And uh, yeah, I just found it so refreshing. Yeah. Well, you know, and part of it too is, and, and in that, um, and I think that one of the themes that I was really hoping to underscore for everyone who would be gracious enough to read the book is that um, learning, learning to discern what it feels like inside when we feel the prompting of what we as people of faith would call the spirit moving us towards something or moving us mm-hmm. away from something or moving us mm-hmm. to stay where we are. Do you know what I mean? Like, but just that inner mm-hmm. feeling, because I think it's um, and it, it's not it's not the same for all of us. It doesn't sound or, or look or, or have the same parameters necessarily. But part of what has bound, what bound some of those experiences together for me was that sense inside of, okay, this is what it feels like for Marianne when contrary to anything external or maybe in affirmation of it, it's sort of irrelevant. This is this is what it feels like when I have to step out in faith or to do something mm-hmm. that I may or may not want to do. The, the desire is um, sometimes it's sometimes it's there and sometimes it's not. But that's not the most important factor. The factor is that that sense of things. And and I and I tried to allude it with other people as you know, other other stories of well of people who have shared with me those moments and what it was like for them. Yeah. I'd love if we could talk maybe a little more concretely about that because we talk a lot on this show about how we listen to God's call on our lives, yeah. particularly in moments of transition, be those the transitions we choose or the transitions that seem to choose us. Mm-hmm. Um, so uh, you were just referring to that felt sense, but I wonder like what practices support your discernment or or how do you attend to the movements of God in your life. Right. How have you known when that is what you're really listening deeply to? Thank you. Well, the most honest answer, of course, would be I would never say that I know for certain, but that I'm willing, I have come to the point 
And this, you know, because of some things that happened to me relatively early in life, I, I have enough confidence in some certain discerning points, and I'll speak to those in a moment, that I'm willing to risk following them, even if in the end they turn out not to be what I thought, if that makes sense, right? Mm-hmm. That So there are certain, but for me, um, certain impulses internally and also, I mean, I, I spend a lot of time listening and more and more as I get older to other voices, other especially in leadership, you know, to really think and work um, and discern collaboratively. But when in the end, I do my best to honor that, um, you know, what what scripture called the still small voice, although sometimes it's not very still and sometimes it's not a voice, but it's um, <laughs> it's something, right? It's that. And I, I don't know that I can adequately describe it. And I can't say that it's not influenced by things like anxiety and fear and all the things that make me human. But I believe that we do in time receive enough from God to be able to trust that experience when it happens. And the other thing I'll say about it is it's relatively rare. You know, it's not an everyday occurrence for me. So I, it, you know, I, most of the time it's the driving in the fog with, head, you know, with, you know, with headlights on. It's not like I don't get this, you know, just by sitting down to do my centering prayer in the morning. Right. These are these are significant gifts and they don't come on my timetable. Right. Um, and so does that make sense? I mean, they're just so it it's um, it's worth paying attention to. And it's also for the people that we love and the people that are in our orbits of, you know, of community, it's also interesting to listen to other people's moments of clarity when they come too, right? Because yeah. um, I was just with a couple this just last night who've been really struggling with something, and last night they had come to clarity, and you could tell. Mm. Um, and it's um, and not clarity in terms of like the outcome of what they what's before them, but enough clarity that they knew what their next step was going to be. And I think that's yeah. what I'm trying to describe. So, Bishop Marianne, I'm I'm actually uh, I'm an old Presbyterian who became an Episcopalian a few years ago. I still have the Episcopal new car smell. Um, <laughs> um, and one of the things I've really been paying attention to is just just how busy bishops are just how, I mean, just how incredibly busy mm-hmm. you are. Um, so i it's really interesting to me that you took the time to write this book. Mm-hmm. Um, and I imagine there was some inkling of spirit that led to that too. What, what, what led you to want to write, Ooh, write um, this book? Yeah. Well, first of all, I was invited to, which is a, um, which was an extraordinary thing. I was approached by two literary agents who, um, after that brief moment of notoriety that I had when our former president walked across Lafayette Park and held up a Bible in front of St. John's Church, they contacted me. Upside down. Apparently. um, (laughs) And um, you certainly didn't read from it. But the um, (laughs) but in that, you know, in that cauldron of uh, of of 
very brief but intense public attention, these two agents reached out to me and I um, and they talked to me for a good long while. And they said um, they basically asked me if there was anything that I would want to write about, what would it be? Which if you can, I mean, it's an extraordinary invitation. And I, I had been thinking about this theme of dis. In fact, the sub, the, the subtitle is the for me was the working title all the way through, um, decisive moments in life and faith. And I realized that in one form or another, I'd been thinking about that or reflecting or writing about it in some form for almost all of my adult life. And um, they worked with me for over a year to put a proposal in place. And during that time, I can tell you, there were months that would go by when I would think that nothing was going to come of this, that this was Mm. just an exercise in futility because I just wasn't getting it right. Um, But they worked with me for that year. um, And I just slowly, painstakingly kept at it. Um, And then I was given a contract and one thing about a contract, it's like Sunday mornings for preachers. It, they're deadlines. They're deadlines with contracts. Mm-hmm. And so, um, but I have to, I have to confess, it was, I don't, I, it was one of the hardest things I've ever done in terms of just finding the time, and also the difference between writing a book as opposed to preaching, which is my my normal um, kind of conduit of communication. A little bit of writing, but it's mostly preaching. And preaching does not require the same rigor of exactitude. <laughs> Maybe it should, but it doesn't. And uh, um, and so I, it was one. Of, it was it was quite it was quite an endeavor. And I I spent a lot of I spent a lot of my the two and a half years it took thinking about Anne Lamott's um, wisdom, the writer Anne Lamott, about just focusing on a little square. Um, and just working on a square because I've, if I thought about the whole thing, I would, I would fall into despair. And so, you know, I would spend three months on chapter two, you know, I would spend <laughs> an entire summer with Eleanor Roosevelt. I mean, it was just this, um, and I'm amazed and grateful that it came to fruition. And if I had not been invited to, it would never have happened. Um, and I'm really grateful, grateful that I was. Mm-hmm. We're grateful too. You tell a story in the book about reckoning with the histories and harms caused by our denomination. Mm. And you write that at one point you felt you weren't sure if it mattered if the Episcopal Church survived this current time of decline. And then someone said something that made you think differently about that. Could you tell us that story? Yeah. I was on this commission, as I mentioned, in the Diocese of Minnesota, looking at the state of our diocese and um, working with uh, Craig Van Gelder, who um, you know in his work and writing, extraordinary uh, theorist of congregational revitalization. And um, we were in a very low place in our work. And, um, and I began to openly question in my prayer life um, if it mattered to God. I knew that in terms of the gospel, the gospel would continue, that the ministry of Jesus, the movement of the spirit, but did it matter to God if an institution like the Episcopal Church survived? And a colleague and a friend of mine who was also on this commission, she and I were walking in a parking lot during a break at one of these meetings, and she she just looked at me and she said, well, it sure matters to me. It sure matters to me that the Episcopal Church is here, and it matters to me that it survives, because the Episcopal Church saved my life. 
And the Episcopal Church gave me a home where I wasn't welcome anywhere else. And the Episcopal Church not only welcomed me, but honored my vocation and allowed me to be a priest. And, um, and what that did in my heart, Claire, is it, I thought of her, of course, but I thought of all the other people that I know and love, the community I was serving at the time, the people that I have come to know in our church. And, and I thought, you know, it, it matters to them and it matters to me. And I'm going to pray, I'm going to take it on faith that it matters to God in the sense that God would be pleased if in our, we could find the best expression, the most gospel-centered expression of what it means for us to occupy our tiny little place on the spectrum of Christianity, but to do so really well and faithfully and to grow and to learn what it meant for us to be who we are with all of, you know, we carry with us in a transformed and, and resurrected way. So it gave me, she gave me a great gift that day. And, um, and it's, it's still how I live my life now because, you know, the, the decline hasn't abated in, in so many ways and places. But I hold on to that, um, that dream and also the, the people, I, I just think about the people for whom this church is their spiritual home, their refuge, their lifeline, uh, their way of understanding uh, the gospel of Jesus. And that if we weren't here to proclaim and to live it the way we do, that something precious would be lost. And, yeah. uh, and that's, that's kind of the foundation, that is the foundation of my vocation. I love how you both have that sense of stewardship of something really precious that is the Episcopal Church, but also this sense of what, you know, why we're, why we are in mission for, mm -hmm. the, for the sake of others. And I, I really was struck by your, uh, I had not come across Dr. King's, uh, Martin Luther King Jr.'s interpretation Oh, the, the Good Samaritan. Samaritan, yeah. And I was, if you could just share that, because um, uh, it's really compelling. Oh, my gosh. Uh, yes, he um, he used it several times, um, the most hauntingly so in the last uh, speech he gave in his life, which was the night before he was assassinated. And he was talking about the reason why, in that context, why he had chosen to come to Memphis to stand in solidarity with the sanitation workers that were striking for a living wage and um, uh, you know, safe living, safe working conditions. And the way he spoke about the, about the, the Good Samaritan in that context was he said that when he thought about the, um, the reasons why the two religious leaders of that story passed the wounded man on the roadside by, that he suspected they did so out of fear. And that the question they were asking themselves was something along the lines of, if I stop to help this man, what will happen to me? Hmm. And he said the, the Samaritan traveling down that same road asked a different question. And his question was, if I don't stop to help this man, what will happen to him? What will happen to him? 
So it puts the onus of the consequence, the feared consequence on the other person that we're there, that we, that we are presumably in relationship with or there to serve. And uh, I find that to be the most, one of the most compelling insights into the compassion that King um, had for people in his life um, and his unwillingness to give up on the cause for nonviolent change in this country because he was always asking, if I don't do this, what will happen to, to them, to other people? Mm. Yeah. Yeah. Throughout the book, you know, you seem really clear about the fact that we need to be honest that sometimes following Jesus does come at a cost. Yeah. I mean, it can bring obviously great joy and meaning to us, but also right. sometimes it does require some sacrifice and stepping outside of ourselves. You tell the story of a group of nuns who very easily and simply <laughs> gave up their space so that Father Greg Boyle, who has this beautiful ministry in, in L.A. with right. gang members and former gang members, could have a home for his organization, Homeboys Inc. Yeah, um, yeah. Isn't that great? And I, I just, <laughs> I know. It's so great. Yeah, they're just like, okay. <laughs> sure, you know, he, uh, it's such a great, it, it's just, it's in one of his early books, but he just said, yeah, you know, he's gathering up all his courage to ask this question, like, could you move out so that, you know, and they're like, yeah, sure. And I, I use that example of, um, it's, I think it's a, it's, it's, a, it's a rare but very compelling experience for all of us when when something is presented to us and for whatever reason, there just isn't a lot of time to think. Um, and so all of those discerning prayer practices and thought processes that we would go through are not available to us. And we simply have to respond in the moment. And I loved I, I use that story because it's just such a, it's such a delightful example of it. But other times um, the decision may cost a person his or her life. You know, if we think about Jonathan Daniels choosing to step in, you know, step in front of a bullet or we think of anyone who decides to do something in the moment that will be life saving or transforming for others. Um, and the cost may, in fact, be um, complete or some variation of that. Right. Yeah, I I think the book really uh, y you have kind of these compelling stories of bravery of individuals, uh, Howard Thurman and Pauli Murray and Jonathan Daniels. But the thing I love about that that story about the nuns is it's also talking about a community. Yes. Um, yes. And I'll just say, you know, our, a number of our congregations in the Diocese of California are at a point where uh, there's just really costly decisions. Yeah. Them. Yeah. Opportunities, but where it's going to cost something and it's going to really require change uh, and and at real real reimagination yes <laughs> um, I, I'm wondering if there's there's things that um, examples of bravery for, of communities of Christian communities right now maybe even in your own diocese that you you feel like are uh, that we need to hear yeah. Thank you so much for raising that. I, I We have congregations in the exact same place. Um, and what I, the, the fears of losing identity and losing some semblance of communal autonomy are so real and heartbreaking. Um, 
And so I feel that that is a, um, it's a, it's just, it's with us everywhere. Uh, I, I can, that we have one example that I'll share with you. And in part, because um, all of the fears that you've discussed and, and that um, I've alluded to were present for two congregations that that decided to start walking toward one another in friendship and then in small steps of shared ministry, uh, very small. And then at, at, at the tragic and sudden death of one of the ministers of the community and an interim was called, uh, the friendship between those two congregations continued to grow. And when the interim recognized, and this was an act of courage on her part, because they really wanted to call her as, you know, priest in charge call. And she said, look, you can't afford, you can no longer afford to have me. I, I You can't afford me anymore. I love you. But the most loving thing I can do for you is to create space for you to imagine your future. And she took a, a job elsewhere. And in that space, those two congregations decided that they would share their, a priest um, between the two of them, and they would do everything kind of alongside each other. So the vestries met on the same night and the, um, the, the bulletins were put together. They just started wherever they could finding some common purpose. And within a year, all of the things that they thought they were afraid of did not, they, that, that there were, yes, there was loss, but by the time a, the, a year was up, they had decided that they were in fact one congregation and are now functioning as one community. And, um, and they both changed their, they didn't change, they, they're like one community, that's sort of like a multi-site thing, writ small. Mm-hmm. And, um, and I, what I love about their story is that it was, and I've learned from them, it was incremental. It wasn't something, and and I've learned I can't I can't force any congregation to take a big leap if they're not ready. But what felt to them, what looked on the outside to be the biggest leap of all, which was to actually come together as one legal entity, was by that time a relatively small step for them because they had been taking smaller, courageous steps over the course of a couple of years. So that's the best I've got in terms of a community doing something on a communal, I don't have like the nun story, like, yeah, we'll give up our building. And, <laughs> but I, I do believe it's possible. And, um, and to be honest, in, in many of our communities, some kind of reimagining is our hope for allowing what we cherish to find its new expression. And, um, and so like you, I am utterly dedicated to walking communities through a process of small experiments toward something new to see where things might take hold. That's such a beautiful example. Thank you. Yeah. We, we are always interested in congregations learning from congregations yeah. and dioceses learning from dioceses. Yeah. So I wonder, is there something just wonderful happening <laughs> in the Diocese of Washington that you want us to know about? Oh, gosh. Um, thank you. 
we are in um, the fourth year of what is now a sixth year, six year strategic plan. We um, we started it in 2020 and, and because of the pandemic and everything, we extended it a year. And I would say right now we are in the very messy middle, right? Mm. Very messy middle. And um, by the way, thank you for the way you write about the messy middle yeah, in the book. Yeah. You, uh, you explicate mm-hmm. that. Because we're in the messy middle, just yeah. in and thriving. I'll just say, yeah, it's, it's, it's not. Very it is, and it's, and and so I would say, um, and I have had moments of real wondering myself in terms of how how things are moving forward. And so, what I would say is, what is wonderful, and we just had a two day reflection about this with our team. It's my it's my small Austin team, and one of the things that I I want to say is that we have successfully created an environment we where we are willing to make mistakes and learn from them and willing to acknowledge setbacks for the pain and the disappointment that they are but without without resorting to well we tried that that's not going to work you know what i mean we're not people are not giving up and so i am praying that in my tenure we will have some experience of momentum where, you know, we're still working just as hard as we're working, but it's not quite as hard, you know, I mean, where there's just that Mm -hmm. sense of um, there's, there's like the collective mysterious process where energy starts moving in a direction. And I see it in bits and pieces in a few congregations, but I, we haven't experienced it yet on a diocesan level, but that's what we're going for, right? I mean, that's what I'm living for is, a sense of when when can the collective experience be one of positive movement forward, and um, almost a, a diffusion of innovation. It is a diffusion of systemic. Yep. Yeah. Yep. And and also and I think you know just all the theory says if you get to like thirty percent that would do it. If we had thirty percent of our congregations kind of experiencing something like that, that would be enough. Right. So it's not, I don't have to get 86 of them in that same space, but, and it's going to look different for everyone. Right. So I think one of the things we're learning is that thriving is going to look different in every context. And we have, I'm sure California is the same. We've got our, the diversity of our contexts is mind blowing. And so we have to live into each one of them with some real humility and intentionality. Um, so that's what I would say. I maybe in a year from now it would be a you know I can report something that's fr- that that is more than that. But to be honest, I'm I'm glad to be where we are. I'm glad to be with these people doing this work. And even if there isn't the kind of fruitfulness we hope for, we're we're stake because you know obviously outcome is not in our control. It's a good path to walk. It's a resurrection path and. Um, Proud to be walking. You're driving as far as you can see with your headlights. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. yeah, and some good uh, and some good theory, though. I mean, I think there is something yeah. to be, and I, you know, I know that you believe that as well. You need to have some theory to be grounding your work and not just throwing stuff up against a wall. And so, yeah. you know, it's a little bit of yeah. We we wisdom. talk about, um, and I mm-hmm. I think it's like this combination of, you know, uh, technical. You know, there there is. There are technical resources Absolutely. where we actually, there are things we know that can really help us. And we're in this adaptive moment right. where, right. Uh, right. where we're, we're just trying things. Right. Right. Seeing where the spirits at work. Yeah. 
we are coming to the end of our time, and I think we're Claire and I are both just very cognizant of the unique role you have mm. uh, in the nation's capital, and uh, we are in a unique historical moment. I think the world feels smaller and larger than mm-hmm. ever before, True. and we're heading into this contentious presidential election 2024. I, I subscribe to the Washington Post, and yeah. You know, I get those alerts and it's like some days I'm just like, I just don't know if I even want to read what what what's being said and what's happening. Um, if you had to just commend one thing, one uh, practice, one commitment to our listeners as we move forward into 2024, what would it be? I would start with self-awareness and an appreciation and understanding of where each one of us is in the arc of our lives, right? So I'm, you know, I'm gonna be 64 next week. So I'm in a different place than where you are, Claire, and where you are, Scott. And my context is mine and yours are yours. But just to name that for ourselves, like this is, this is where we are. This is where I am in this moment, in this, with everything that you've described, Scott. This is where I am. And then to offer to God the openness to kind of stay in the game at whatever, whatever level feels appropriate or God-driven for each one of us. Because I don't think we're all called to the same thing. We couldn't possibly be. But how, um, but to just be aware of, okay, here I am. This is who I am right now in my, you know, here's my vocational arc. Here's my relational family. Here I am. This is my community. These are my, you know, this is, so where are you? Just ask it, where are you? And then to offer that to God and to pay attention for the ways large or small that any of us might be called upon because we just simply don't know. And it could be in the public arena in some way that surprises any of us. It could be in a more microcosm of experience and relationship. But I think just asking those questions gives the spirit room to move and also takes into account our incarnation, you know, who we are in, in this moment. Mm, that's such a wonderful place for us to land. Thank you. This whole conversation has been such a gift. Um, before we move into the lightning round, <laughs> I have to take a moment because I promised my mom, who was living through most of the pandemic oh. in Albuquerque, New Mexico, now in Florida, that I would pass along her thanks on behalf of, I'm sure, the thousands of people who found um, support and spiritual nourishment at the National Cathedral Thank during you. the pandemic. Thank she you. was one of them. Thank you. So um, Jennifer wants you to know that she loves you. Thank you. <laughs> and I'm sure that there were a lot of people in our church who yeah. really appreciated that witness and that ministry. So yeah, that well, was a significant offering and, uh, for all of us. I will pass that on to the cathedral because they, they the cathedral team works tirelessly um, and they yeah. were amazing, are amazing. Yeah. Thank you. Thank you. Well, thank you so much for speaking with us today. This was just wonderful. Mm. But don't hang up yet. I'm not. I'm not. I'm not. Give a lightning round. Yep. Um, And it's always, you know, 
it's always terrible for me when I when we have bishops on this podcast and it's I okay. tell them you only have twenty seconds. That's okay. <laughs> I, well, you gave me the questions in advance, so I'm ready. <laughs> you're prepared. Uh, all right, clear. Clear. Oh you're yeah, gonna, gosh, it's, it's me. You're, 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 you're <laughs> I have to do the twenty second. Now. All right, here yes, we go. Yes. All right, are you ready? I am. Okay, first, what is the best thing you ever ate at a church potluck? Which is like asking me who is my, which is my favorite child. Last Sunday, I had the most amazing cornbread. Love cornbread. Me too. What is your? Was it sweet? I'm sorry. Now now you got me curious. Was it sweet? (laughs) It was sweet enough, and it had real corn in it, and it was buttermilk based, and it was amazing. Amazing. Good. Sounds amazing. All right. What is your very first memory of a worship service? Go. Mm. I was um, 15 years old because my early years were very blurry in church. And that was the, the time when my best friend at the time invited me to church. And it was a Baptist church. And there was an altar call. And I didn't know what inviting Jesus into my heart meant. But I it was a lonely place, my heart. And I went up and uh, he prayed for me. And uh, that was the beginning of my conscious commitment Beautiful. to Jesus. I'd say it took. <laughs> I wasn't so sure, which is why I became an Episcopalian. You know, it's like I need a weekly altar call. But <laughs> yes, me too. Um, tell us the name of a church leader or theologian who isn't a white male that you're listening to or learning from right now that we should know more about. Who? Um, well, I. I was uh, what I would say is I am always learning from the leaders of the civil rights movement. And so um, constantly. So I just go back to them all the time. The writings of King and the writings of the people who study that era. So that's um, that's the well that I draw from constantly. Hmm. Yeah. Thank you. Thank you so much oh, for being our thank guest you. today, and, Bishop uh, Marianne. We just love having you. Well, thank you. I am grateful, and uh, all my every every blessing to the good good people in California. Thank you. Thank you so much. So, Claire, what did you learn from Bishop Marianne today? I appreciated so much of what she shared. I appreciated the thoughtfulness she seemed to bring to every one of her responses. I think. The thing that stayed with me most was from the beginning when we were talking about her recounting um, her disappointments in certain vocational calls and um, the path that led her to her current role as the Bishop of Washington. I, I really felt so clearly that her honesty about that process and, and the pain that it involved and the ways in which she made mistakes along the way, that that is why people trust her, you know, her ability to be honest about the whole of the story is, is very compelling. And it was just a reminder for me of how trust is so much at the heart of ministry and the the life of the church and, um, whatever it is that God is calling us into in this time of disruption and change, that being honest and, and recentering ourselves in that trust just seems like such an important invitation. How about you? Well, you know, it's, it's, um, we didn't talk with her about this, but one of the things that's really on my mind is that, um, 
at the time of this recording, we're just a few days away from electing a new bishop at the Diocese of California. And yeah. that that new the coadjutor will be named by the time people uh, listen to this. And yeah. I hope they listen to our podcast. <laughs> because mm-hmm. I think what I want to encourage them with is you have feet of clay. You're a human being and you're going to really blow it. You're going to make terrible mistakes. Mm-hmm. And I, I love, I mean, she, she doesn't hold back in her book telling some mm-hmm. You know, she's not just pretending like she made a mistake. No, she made she made a real mistake, and she lays it out, and and she owns it with humility and transparency, and um, and she's also willing to to try things. She's willing to fail in order to learn. Um, she's willing to try things even though they may not succeed. Um, and I just think she's an encouraging example for for. Uh, some the person who will be our bishop, um, and I think, frankly, for any of us, uh, that's I think she writes about faithfulness, but um, the stories I think convey just a good, encouraging example of uh, what faithfulness can look like. Yeah, agreed. Well, I'm grateful she said yes to our email out of the blue. <laughs> I am too, and I'm grateful that you know we it, we had a busy fall, and so we got a, we got off to a little bit of a slower start with this season, but now we are off to the races. Yes, we have wonderful episodes coming up. So thank you all for joining us today. Uh, we'll look forward to being with you all again soon. This podcast is part of Vital and Thriving Congregations, a joint initiative between the Center for Church Innovation and the Episcopal Church in the Bay Area, the Diocese of California. For more information, visit churchinnovation.org.